Apologies are good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's just hit record because I think a disclaimer is good. We could even have it as a standard disclaimer if it's good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I reckon let's keep it short. But we'll see. Do you want maybe me? just say a little bit each? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. So, the, well, the, yeah, the last episode was... Um, the last episode, there were some very deep topics on genocide, war crimes, violence, conquest, imperialism. Pogroms, uh, just racial horrors. And that's history. That is part of history. It's, it's something we shouldn't shy away of. The issue we had with the last episode is that the tone was jovial <laughs> throughout while we discussed these things. I'm going to give us one get out of jail free card here in that for me to process all that kind of extreme violence and hatred and history, I kind of make light of situations. I use comedy as a way to deflect. It's, it's a defensive barrier. It's my go-to to make light of things. Yeah. And the, the topic just is so outrageous that it's, you enter the topic with a feeling of humor based mm. on its outrageousness, mm. but then the content is so horrific that you, I think, immediately de defer back to the ridiculousness to sort of cope with it. Um, but it is seething with racial hate. It's male-centric beyond measure. Yeah, It's all these things that we, you know, don't sign up to in any way, shape or form, but we sort of don't discuss in the episode either. So no. we just roll with it. And I mean, like, nor, nor should we. We don't have to put disclaimers on everything all the time. You know, that that is life, but... I was very concerned about the tone. It was <laughs> upbeat. It was rambunctious. We were having a hell of a time with our guest, Kyle. Um, so that kind of gave us the idea for this episode, for episode two. Uh, and it's just disclaimer after disclaimer, which shows we are racked with some sort of social guilt. Uh, yeah. I'll also apologize for that. Yeah, I mean, that that's fine. That's a, yeah, look, that's it. But today we just, we just sat down and said, look, we... We should do a part two just purely for our own sake and for our listeners' sake, if they're still even tuned in at this point. So I went through my roller decks and we both agreed straight away on talking to Ivan. Ivan is a good friend of the show. He is studying counseling. Um, and if anyone's going to help us just kind of work through the history of this, the business idea we created, Genghis Tron, of course. The ethics. The ethics, yep. Yeah. Of this whole freaking podcast. He's a spiritual counselor uh, for us. He's yeah. maybe a financial counselor. So this is episode two or episode 1.2 or episode part two of episode one yeah. uh, of the Genghis Tron saga. Exactly. Throughout the show, um, we're going to show Ivan a fast moving GIF that we created. So if you want to see what we're talking about, please jump onto our Instagram page. You'll see the Genghis Tron GIF uploaded somewhere in the feed uh and then you'll know what the fuck we are referring to if you wish to purchase the gif as an nft send me an email explaining exactly what that is and then maybe we can get the ball rolling but i don't know what it is that's okay send it through to kipodcast at y7mail.co.uk you should make a real email yeah <laughs> yeah hit us up on instagram that's it so this is part two of genghis tron with ivan manning There'll be proper cultural sort of translations happening. 
Yeah, awesome. Pretty keen on. We shall see. This is a very profound and mature conversation, so you're not going to like this podcast, Dad. <laughs> I, I find you when, you know, it was you two, so I can't accept, expect it. It, it to be straight, straight-faced or straight-laced. <laughs> you're not going to like where we're steering <laughs> this, and I'm going to start it now, okay? <laughs> okay. Ivan, we originally had two ideas for this podcast. Um, the first was we i was trying to get in touch with you for a while there was a period we were missing each other's calls i was calling you just getting your voicemail then eventually your voicemail started dying out and i was calling your phone and it was just nothing and this was after you went on a week-long buddhist retreat so jake and i suspected foul play and we we're going to do a whole podcast just speculating on your whereabouts whether <laughs> whether you had you know been overcome by sort of a religious vision and were off into the desert to sort of um you know experience that or you've been struck down by a buddhist cult instead and well who or knows in fact a buddhist demon or buddhist demon but regardless man we're very very happy to have you on the show you're our second ever guest and I think you should feel very honoured because every guest we've had on so far has been given an incredible opportunity to enrich their life by the end of the episode. <laughs> oh, I, I do feel very honoured. So, look, we've left you pretty much in the dark. We haven't even told you what we're talking about, what's going on today. So to help with that, can you please open up your email and just describe to us exactly what you see? Okay. I think I'm about to have a um, seizure looking at this. <laughs> Can you describe Anything. any of the images on the screen? A fast changing cornucopia, kaleidoscopic cornucopia of images and words. The words are exponential swine billions Shambhala, I think. And the images include a Buddha, maybe our dear Lord, um, <laughs> a wealthy couple, and maybe a general of some someone in military fatigues. Um, That's very impressive. All, all changing at a rate of knots. That is a very accurate description. Um, can you see anything linking these words or images together. I, I forgot to add there's some something, some symbols or icons that maybe look Chinese or something in origin. Um, the two little red circles. Um, to me, there's like some kind of potentially spiritual thread to or religious thread to a couple of the images. Um, you know, there's also they're also quite disparate. The guy in military fatigues, the wealthy couple. The wealthy couple look like they could be kind of like new age spiritual types. What is this? This is kind of like psychoanalysis free association to these images. But um, I was going to say, I feel like you be, could be projecting. Ivan, <laughs> I mean, you have you have one hundred percent accurately associated word to image oh fantastic and i'll tell you i'll tell you what they all mean okay so the first image is a picture of the buddha and the word shambhala as you said uh pretty self-explanatory shambhala which i'm amazed you aren't aware of is the hidden underground paradise of 
certain sects of Buddhism. Okay. The second image is the Newman couple, who are an Israeli-American couple who formed a startup called WeWork. Uh, there's recently been a TV show created about it, and it was a sort of fantastic rise and then fall of this Silicon Valley Uber startup company that made billions of dollars, hence the word, and crashed out. The third image is, as you said, a general, uh, and that is linked to the word swine. I'll come back to him. The fourth image is a figure called Genghis Tron, who is, in fact, a hypothetical cryptocurrency. <laughs> hypothetical meaning we have created it. <laughs> and it is linked to the word exponential because that is exactly what it is, exponentially loaded with potential, both financial, spiritual, and we'll add some other things in after that <laughs> in post-production. Um, order of importance, obviously. No, so hence the gift. There is no order of importance. They are a ongoing hegemony of importance that feed and eat themselves much like the Ouroboros snake consuming its own body. <laughs> so in the first podcast, we spoke to another West Australian like yourself and we sent simply the still image of the general with the word exponential. Uh, Genghis Tron didn't have a face yet at that point. He yeah. now does. Uh, have you seen this general before based on the one microsecond flash that you get every <laughs> 30 seconds? I don't think I have seen this general before. I've definitely seen the, the thousand yard stare in his eyes. Um, he looks potentially deranged, um, mm -hmm. but I don't recognize him. No, that's all right. That's okay. So, the last podcast, we spoke to MasterChef celebrity and contestant. <laughs> We've taken production liberties by fading this section of the podcast out because it is all readily available in the should have been already listened to episode one of the Genghis Tron series. If it has not, you should stop now and rewind because you're going to have a really bad time. So look, anyway, we'll, we'll, what we really wanted to talk about is not just the ethics of this whole business, this Genghis Tron idea, but is it even like a good idea in general or is it just morally repugnant? Because the guy we're basing it off, Ungern von Sternberg, is a genocidal maniac. He commits numerous crimes across uh, Russia and Mongolia. He's got a pretty spectacular rise to sort of power and then a massive fall, but we're basing a whole business off someone that was pretty, pretty evil. And the micro and the macro of his deeds were just bad across the board. He, you know, he was a high ranking general of the white Bolshevik movement. Uh, and he was, you know, in control of thousands of people, he raised villages, he led pogroms, he led genocides. He also was a petty, pathetic little kind of loser who carried a bamboo stick around and would just thrash people on sort of the micro level. So there's not really any room to move on whether he's a good guy or not. Uh, which... He sounds very Buddhist from your descriptions of him. And everything, in your experience, like when you're sort of doing counselling or, or you want to advise sort of um, someone you're, you're speaking to, how much of the blame can be shifted on childhood versus your actions? Well, the first thing I'd say is that I'm a counselling student. 
not uh-huh. a counselor, <laughs> which is <laughs> gonna, which is gonna not really add to the legitimacy of my opinion. But what interests me, yeah. Well, that will this will be the test. The so I remember my cousin once said to me, who is a proper counseling psychologist, he said, you know, wasn't a fan of a lot of Freud stuff, but Freud did have this insight that what happens to us in our past is influential in our present and what we do. Um, and I think that can be said on childhood, but the whole emphasis on childhood does is from a particular school of thought, which has become very successful, which is kind of like the, the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic um, school of thought on which basically a lot of therapy and counselling was founded with Freud and Jung and these kind of guys. So I don't think anyone would contest that what happens to a person in childhood can shape them in a really powerful way. But there's a difference between that and determinism. So I did this because this happened to me in childhood. Because I guess that view of the world, and this is like a tension that's, that exists also in the area of counselling that I'm interested in, which is um, domestic abuse and specifically you know, men who perpetrate domestic abuse. So can we say that men perpetrate abuse because they experienced um, adverse experiences, traumatic events or abuse in their childhood? We couldn't say that for sure because not all men who experience that in their childhood then go on to abuse, right, or do, do violent or dangerous or abusive things. However, it also seems that... So it's, it's not... Um, it's not necessarily deterministic, right? It's not, it's not X uh, equals Y. Um, but then you would have to say that those, in, those experiences in childhood do, I think the statistics back this up as well, though I can't cite them, that people who experience abuse or um, distress or adverse experiences, they call them in childhood, may be more likely to uh, perpetrate abuse or to go on and do the kind of things that our dad von Sternberg got up <laughs> got up to. I don't know. What do you what do you guys make of that question? Well, let me give you the other side of the coin as well. There's not just his childhood, there's also the European society that he grows up in. Because <laughs> like things like classism, sexism, racism isn't just institutionalized in Europe during the 19th century. It's actively celebrated, like well and truly. I was looking at, um, because he grows up in Austria, Austria is like a multi-ethnic melting pot. It's part of the Austro-Hungarian empire. There are people from everywhere living within the empire. And in the town that Ungern's from, um, there's different newspapers to cater to the different ethnic groups. And in the German newspaper written at the time in the travel section, it describes his own city that he lives in as quote, an off-putting goulash of Slavs, Jews, and foreigners. And then it goes on to say that we hope that our city shall never cease to call itself and will forever remain purely German. So that's the kind of literature he's reading. Another guy you might've heard of called Adolf Hitler, who's also grows up in Austria, is probably reading these type of newspapers as well. Um, It's just rampant. This is a guy who apparently was shocked as a child to see one of their Estonian I guess, indentured servants cut mm. themselves and to see them bleed red because he'd grown up believing that Estonian peasants bled black blood. So the old nature versus nurture, there's a few more subheadings, I reckon. Yeah, there's <laughs> absolutely, absolutely more. I agree with that. It's, it's 
that's an, uh, a false dichotomy, maybe. <laughs> I don't know people, people call it that. But the funny thing with this man is that these, there are these odd little contradictions that kind of make him a, he has the air of a cheeky scamp, <laughs> a, like a genocidal cheeky scamp. So there's just something so enticing. It, historically, it just sort of curious, curiously about his life. Um, whether it's geographical, because he, you know, he goes romping across the steppes of Mongolia, um, which you know, we're obsessed with, but it's a niche for most. Um, but there's just something in his character, in his dead little eyes, that has absolutely captivated <laughs> us and we hope captivates the rest of the world. Yeah, I can, I can hear that. And it's surprising that he's, he seems, would, is he in relative obscurity despite doing some significant things in certain parts of the world? Relative historical That's obscurity. That's a very accurate way of describing it. He achieved so much yet at the same time kind of failed uh he and you can i guess you can when you start to hear about that kind of life history combined with the socio-cultural milieu that you described that he grew up in it's kind of brutalizing of the human spirit it's to me it seems kind of unsurprising that a person exposed to that much atrocity brutality trauma and participating in those things continues along a path of increased what depravity or but yeah. what's what's really odd is that he he sort of ventures further east uh, into russia where he starts bumping into these central asian and siberian types of people who a lot of them are practicing buddhists and i don't know what it is but something about buddhism really strikes a chord with him so he converts to buddhism yet it doesn't seem to slow down any of the genociding or murder now, you were on a Buddhist retreat. How come you didn't go wild like Ungern Sternberg? Well, uh, how do I answer that question? <laughs> it, was an, it was a narrow run thing. Uh, yep. It was a close <laughs> run thing. <laughs> I was under the tutelage of one of the meditation masters of the world, Arjun Brahm, so that was probably helpful. Um, and... We're also very well fed. So that was also probably helpful in rendering myself at least quite docile in that I needed to have an extended lie down after lunch each day. So there was no kind of scope for homicidal rages to genocidal rages to take place. Um, but tell us about the retreat you went on. It was, were there any insights, any? Yeah, definitely there was insights. I think, with a lot of those teachings, and this could be said of the maybe the psychedelic experiences as well that you mentioned that we might touch on, is the insights are often banal. They're nothing that when we would discuss them in this context uh, are things that would be revolutionary or that you perhaps haven't heard before, but in practice they can be quite profound and powerful. And I think in that space, you're forced to really, I would understand that retreat as being about rest and about stopping, because I find that in our culture and our way of life, that stopping and truly resting is a rare thing. Um, like I think about Christmas day and I think that's not even that restful. That's supposed to be perhaps one of the most restful days of the year, but it usually involves, you know, preparing food and, um, 
going to see family and these kind of things. So it's it's when you allow the mind to rest and just process all that has been going on in life, I guess it um, perhaps opens you to receive those teachings and to become more closely acquainted with the mind in a different way. Um, so, yeah, I had insights about a lot of it about my own life and relationships, um, but in a quite subtle way, probably not in a like words flashing, a GIF flashing across the front of the screen. Like it's not, not like that, but it's a, a subtle and reflective kind of um, practice. Does that, yeah. know, that, does that help? So like Jake and I have got a history of failed startups, business ideas, you know, companies that never kind of make it off the ground. Finally, I think we really have something here, like basing a cryptocurrency off buried Mongolian treasure. I, I really want to see it through, like push it through for once. But the, it's just the unfortunate thing is that we have based it off like a genocidal warlord maniac. I think the business is sound, but what we're basing it off is potentially unethical and might run us into problems in the future. You know, we're here for some advice really, because both of us, <laughs> like we can go through the list. Like you started a kimchi business. I've currently started a wine business, which I had a business partner. I have a business partner who just went into like a maniacal exponential growth mode uh, using my money. And I had to rein him in. And the kimchi business he just mentioned started to do really well. And as soon as it started to do really well, I reined it in and said, fuck this, and just closed it down. Um, and it just seems so different to these maniacal, ambitious maniacs like Ungan. Uh, and I guess we're worried that without that spirit, can we attach ourselves to a story like this? Without that blind uh, narcissism, how's it going to work? Do you think you guys get more the joy is in the idea rather than the execution. Don't give us that. We are going to get this treasure. <laughs> I think it might be a thing like you, you know, they say don't meet your heroes because mm. you'll be disappointed by them. It's, it's as though in grounding the dream into something real, you kill it in the process or you extract all the, joy that you guys get from it. I don't know. So you're saying we shouldn't bring Ungan back from the dead and have a meet and greet. <laughs> well, I don't <laughs> know anything about on the cards. I don't know anything about cryptocurrency. It doesn't appear to be the most ethical of worlds. I, as just before I got onto this podcast, I was flicking through ABC news and saw that a cryptocurrency called Dogecoin, which I think is from mm. a fucking meme was worth $89 yeah. billion and then collapsed. So I would say that, Nothing is impossible in the world of cryptocurrency based on that. If you call Exponential it... goes both ways, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would you call it? Ungan, Ungan Mark or something? I don't know. I mentioned it briefly. You're close. It's called Genghis Tron. Oh, right. It's called Genghis Tron. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not that picture isn't the logo. It's that picture is, is it. It is both an NFT and a crypto and a GIF. So that uh, NFTs are we those don't things. Know what, I don't know. I don't know what they are, but it's. But it's like if some only one person can possess that image, that electronic image, and it's worth a heap of money. Is that right? That's Is that an NFT? I don't know. I think it is. I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, we're just trying to exploit anything we can here, really. And you're right. <laughs> yeah, including your friendships with the people you interview for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, is that a problem? Because uh, I was watching, have you seen the show Succession? No, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. It's, the, it's like Murdoch kind of family vibes, right? Exactly. He's based on like a Rupert Murdoch type figure and it's about his kids sort of, you know, who's going to line up to succeed him as CEO of the company, but he kind of puts them through all these sort of psychological tests and pairs them against each off against each other and things like this. But there's one line that he said in the show and I thought, shit, you know, you might be right here. Like it's all fun, like enjoying the process, mm. getting a lot out of this ideas. And at one point his son sort of is trying to take the company in an ethical way. And the main character, he says to him, life isn't knights on horseback it's a number on a piece of paper it's a fight for a knife in the mud end quote and he may be right are we being too naive here Ivan? in what sense is it a fight for a knife in the mud like i'll give you another example in the 1990s the biggest importer of cigarettes in russia was the orthodox church it had been given all kinds of sort of tax incentives by boris yeltsin so it was the largest cigarette importer in in russia that's supposed to be the moral compass of Russia and it was importing cigarettes by the truckload. Here's a question for you. Is it all connected and does it matter? <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Is, so is the, is the question for you guys, um, do we bother with any moral considerations in a world where morality never seems to be a simple run thing or there seems to be contradictions in any moral dilemma or and what is the what is the purpose of considering moral questions in this kind of world and this is important because once we pull the trigger on this operation and shoot on that starting gun there's no turning back exponential means exponential and this will steamrolling success in blinding speed and we don't want to be caught up in some sort of cancellation culture Anywho, <laughs> thank you for answering the question. Yeah. Um, was it a question? Was it a question or was it a statement? Was it a question in a way that a football commentator, um, you know, provides a statement and then encourages the player to reiterate the statement? Well, there's apparently a Chinese concept in business where they say, do whatever you do to get ahead because, you know, life's tough. It is a fight over a knife in the mud. And then once you've made it, then you start to do good and you start to act ethically and help those around you and, you know, help repair the environment. I sort of see a contradiction there because you just destroy the environment. And then once you make it repair the damage you've already done, but that's one sort of school of thought. I remember learning at um, business school that I did for six months. Yeah. Doing and nothing it's... is the same as that, isn't it? Basically. <laughs> True. And often those ethical dilemmas, there's competing ethical dilemmas, like there's environmental concerns, there's kind of, and then there's humanistic concerns, and sometimes those two are in conflict with each other. So I guess it's so hard to be ethical in this world. I think you like ethically compromised before you walk out your front door, essentially. But yeah, I agree with you about that guy. That that one, um, that seems like flawed logic to me because there's nothing to say that when people do accumulate a great deal of resources and wealth and influence that they actually use it for, for good. Mm. I don't know. Well, much like Ungan himself, 
amassed $20 million in Mexican pesos for some reason in the middle of Mongolia. Uh, and when his campaign to overthrow the Bolsheviks and reinstate the Tsar after he just freed Mongolia, this was his next mission, uh, it went really badly and he just dumped the, the treasure in a river. So as well as Genghis Khan's treasure floating around Mongolia, there's also 20 million Mexican dollars in a war chest in some sort of river system somewhere. In the that is remarkable. Is, is that the one you're looking to find as your capital for the startup? Yep, exactly. It'll be the easier treasure out of the two, seeing as Genghis Khan's is notoriously the most well-hidden treasure on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another ethical issue that came up early, not even to do with the treasure or Genghis Tron, but with the topic itself is, are you familiar with Orientalism? Yes. Um, so that this not, not but, well versed, but yeah. But anyway, that term basically perfectly covers what we're doing and what Ungan was doing. Uh, he was the OG Orientalist, if I ever saw one. He would just often comment that both Asians and Buddhists in particular were a pure race and he was going to cleanse the West of their filth using sort of the, the things he learned and brought back with him from the East, which he just viewed through a purely Orientalist lens because he completely maintained his religious and cultural roots from the West the whole time. Um, and then we have adopted him and his journeys through Asia, again, through our own lens. And I started to drown while at uni studying this for one semester in my own Orientalism. Have you come across this in any of your travels at all? You've lived in Indonesia, you've traveled a lot. Have you drowned in your own Orientalism before? Yeah, I reckon definitely. I can think of a really clear one, which is this idea that people in Southeast Asia are so friendly. Um, They're beautiful. They're beautiful people. And I, and mm. I, I remember, you, li, li, yeah, beautiful people, all these kind of things, like we would have any insight into the meanings that, those people in those cultures attached to their demeanor or their way of relating to others and that our experience with them would tell us anything um complete or anything uh comprehensive about the nature quote unquote of you know people in southeast asia um, it's a very, I, I think I came to realise that that was a very simplistic and ignorant kind of assumption. I don't know. Do you think, is that an ex example of Orientalism? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. I can't, I was going to give another example, but you just did. Yeah, that's it. And Ungan did it with a sword and a gun. Yeah. The other, the other issue is we'll get to the other, the good side eventually but another issue is there are literally no women both in this story or in this podcast and it's a little bit a little bit concerning to say the least i think on most of his journey he was creating a safe space for toxic masculinity by carving out this sort of... <laughs> sounds like it sounds like yeah. he might have been one of the originators of toxic no i'm sure he was existed well prior to him but he was so certainly in, a shining example, wasn't he? Oh, he was a real sword bearer. He led the charge in his own day, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, there is a mention he got married at one point. There's barely any information on it, but he 
very unceremoniously took a wife and then just before his last campaign, he declared that a real soldier should not have a family and unceremoniously divorced her and she just disappears from the story again. So it's about a two sentence mention in any of the resources we found. Uh, and that's our main female character uh, in this entire history. Mm. So my, my worry is that we're going we're gonna to lose a lot of investors based on this. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you had a solution. No solution. All I, all, all I can think of is that it, that may getting divorced was in a in a in a quick manner from him may may have been the best thing that could have happened to her in that in that situation. He does Based thrash. We know he does thrash an old Mongol woman with his bamboo cane at one point to declare that the three days of rape and pillage are over in this town that they liberate. Um, and we also stumbled upon something else which was quite shocking when we saw it at first. The the Bogod Khan, who's the third highest figure in Buddhism, who uh, Ungern puts back on the throne of Mongolia once he liberates the country. Um, his wife, who's obviously um, sort of a living queen over there, we saw a photo of his wife and she looks exactly like Queen Amidala of Naboo from Star Wars Episode <laughs> One. And that's not because she looks like Queen Amidala. Queen Amidala looks like her. Star Wars completely, and we'll put this image up on our Instagram, on our site when we're <laughs> up and running. Star Wars completely... They it's didn't even, to a T, to a T. Yeah. They didn't even tweak the outfit of this, you know, Mongolian um, princess, this Mongolian queen. They just took the outfit thread for thread, put it on Natalie Portman and off, off they went. So if the Russian Orthodox Church is selling cigarettes, Star Wars is stealing outfits and costumes and making billions of dollars, why the hell can't we? Why are we the only ones playing by the rules here? I'll answer your question with another question. Do you think... Um... Von Sternberg was then the uh, inspiration for Jar Jar Binks. Bombardier <laughs> <laughs> General, yeah. <laughs> or um, Boss Nass. <laughs> Boss Nass, yeah. You sung and Bombardier General. Exactly. Would you like to know where? Queen Amidala's outfit comes from. Sure. It's a, if you remember, there's a headdress that looks like two big cow horns that goes downward. It's one of her many dresses, mm. but this is the one that's stolen from the Mongols. And it comes from a Mongol myth that the birth of the nomads was because a nature spirit made sweet love to a cow and gave birth to the first nomad who suckled its breast. And then she slapped it on the butt and it ran off into the steppe and gave birth to all the nomads. And those horns are meant to represent the nature spirit and the cow's love affair. Do you think Queen Amidala knew that? Do you think Natalie Portman knew that? Do we need to email her? I suspect not. <laughs> I suspect Natalie didn't know that. And I suspect Star Wars, but we're not always uh, appropriately acknowledging there where they drew their inspiration from. It's time for a word from our sponsor. Uh... Just a note on our sponsors, we like everything, try to keep it real, keep it fresh and keep things that are close to our heart. And we don't choose them, they choose us because, you know, we're a fledgling startup here. So we, we take the sponsors where we can. But today's sponsor is? Today's sponsor is the All Aussie Titanium Bull Bar. Uh, yeah, get one. Oh, shit. Ah. 
Ah, oh, I think we just hit a roo. You kids all right? Yep, not a scratch on me. Well, that's probably because we just put on the double titanium reinforced Aussie made top end bull bar. All Aussie top end titanium roo bars. It's kill or be killed. Only problem is, spilt me fucking beer. <laughs> Find us downtown in the top end at 18616661 Desert Old Flower Road, just behind Clark Rubber. <laughs> Dud, one thing we didn't really bring up um, in the last podcast uh, when we were talking about Ungern Sternberg was um, the, the use of shamans throughout his life. And it's very strange because he does convert to Buddhism. He also starts seeing shamans frequently when he's out in the steppe, when he's heading into Siberia. He consults them all the time. And we can't help but think that shamans would have influenced him quite a lot in his decision-making and perhaps even some of the actions he, he took. Um, now, you, you and I have consulted a shaman before from Seattle. Uh, you consult him much more frequently than I do. My experience... We can talk about that a bit later, but my experience was overwhelmingly hellish, whereas yours was quite profound. <laughs> but why, what do you get out of seeing a shaman? Like you do this pretty regularly. What, what's the purpose? What do you get out of it? Well, I, I guess I wouldn't frame it in those terms, you know, like I wouldn't call that person, I wouldn't call them a shaman. Um, but they are from Seattle, right? Cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> um what do i get out of that well i think it's a question that i could offer an easy answer for but i've pondered on a lot and continue to ponder on. i would say that those experiences are some of the most hellish and confronting experiences that i've ever had in my whole life um but just because they were hard doesn't mean they were bad um i wouldn't i think the, the longer that goes on the less i understand about what was happening in those experiences but i guess i have faith that they help me to live a better life they help me to become more aware they help me to move past old ways of being um and more and more i think some of the most valuable things about their experiences is the appreciation of beauty and what that does to you to experience profound beauty um that's a fairly sincere answer. I'm not sure if that's what you're after, but very sincere. I would also think, I would also say it's kind of like big wave surfing in the mind. It's kind of exhilarating. And I wouldn't deny that for someone who's shit scared of big waves, perhaps that's my become a form of thrill seeking for me. But the, it's definitely some kind of seeking. Does it? Does it have these profound effects or does it just sort of enforce what you already believe? Because I think with Ungern, he's absolutely seeing shamans often and yet he doesn't, he doesn't experience anything that's like 
compassionate or empathetic, you know, he can continues on this very violent, bloody path. Whereas with you, you're a pretty, you know, friendly, gentle sort of person, and you're continuing on that path. Does the does this experience just cement that? Maybe it supports that, you know, maybe it supports a particular way of being. But again, it it doesn't work in mysterious ways. I remember my friend sent me a tweet about a guy who uh, went to do uh, went to do ayahuasca, um, you know, hearing about these life-changing experiences and all that he experiences was a visual manifestation of his car, which told him <laughs> that it he needed to take better care of it, you know? Like that was the thing that came up, his car speaking and say, you need to take better care of me. But I guess when what I would read in that is like, maybe that's where he was at and maybe that's representative of his approach to life more generally. Um, but like what, I don't know, we don't know what kind of shamans was uh, Ungan consulting because what like were they using plant medicines or were they yeah what were they up to do we know i kind of know there was a spread of shamanism at the time which was basically split split into three categories there was white shamanism which had uh incorporated buddhism there was black shamanism which uh incorporated no buddhism that was animism it was tengrist it was sort of the existing mongolian uh shamanistic religion and then there was a third one, which I quote, a third category consisted of the evil spirits of the slaves and non-human goblins, which I can only guess is everything else. <laughs> uh, but Ungan, from what we've read, I'm guessing was consulting, he was hanging out with Buryats and Mongols, uh, Kalk Mongols, which are basically white shamans. So they've incorporated Buddhism. There's a bit of a class divide. So the commoners, would more often consult with the black shamans, whereas those with a bit more money or that lived in towns would consult with the Buddhist shamans. And I think Ungan was with the whites. Um, everything in this story is split into different colors. So there's the yellows who are the Buddhists. There's the whites who are the Bolsheviks. There were no, who are the non-Bolsheviks. There are the reds who are the Bolsheviks. There are the whites who are the shamans. There are the blacks who are the shamans. So it's a bit of a melting pot of only three colors and you can't tell who's who and who's doing what. Um, yeah, whether they're eating shroomies, I have no idea. There's certainly hints that he's going on some journeys. Uh, at some point he thinks he can also tell who is Jewish by reading their mind. So where that comes from, I'm not sure. Um, and it's Mongolian Buddhism uh, is, seems to be very different from the Buddhism, you know, practiced in like a studio in Hawthorne. Um, it hinges on <laughs> sacrifice. What's that Buddhism called? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you can give me the answer of being the only practicing Buddhist among us. Oh, wait, are you a Buddhist, Jake? Would you describe yourself uh, as a Buddhist? Absolutely not. No. Okay. An animist, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps I'm, an animist. I'm not even sure. I'm not sure I'd describe myself as a practicing Buddhist. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. But it's it, from what I was reading, they're saying, you know, Mongolian Buddhism, it hinges on sacrifice. Um, there's this constant, like, sort of push and pull between the spirit world and the real world that you either have to, like, abate it or fight against it or, you know, control it. 
Um, it's like, it's, mm. it's, there's like very demanding rituals that must be performed to sort of keep evil spirits either on side or at bay. This is something that doesn't come up at all in, in Buddhism that we know in the West or like the Buddhism practiced by the Beatles, for example. It's, this is pure animism. So everything has a spirit of its own. Uh, every item, every hill. Also, things are just chucked in. Like Genghis Khan, pretty much as soon as he was gone, was granted a spot with the Tengri, who are the, the spirits. Um, so you just chuck him in there. They grab Buddhism, they just chuck that in there too. Like Hinduism, all these religions have sort of done it a bit. But um, the Mongolian one seems to just do it in a rough and ready way. So it's a, it's a little bit darker it's a little bit bloodier it does sound that way i guess like buddhism's got in the west has got a kind of benevolent uh connotation or reputation perhaps because it's relatively new to the west so it doesn't have the kind of it doesn't have the baggage of christian that christianity has in the west you could argue but that's not to say that buddhists around the world or nations societies cultures where buddhism is the is nominally the main religion are necessarily more benevolent like if you look at myanmar as an example of a place which is still buddhism is the state religion but some distinctly non-buddhist things seem to go on from what i understand is the buddhism that's so revered in the west a form of another form of orientalism Oh yeah, I'm, I imagine there's an element of that. Um, yeah, it's it's a complex question to me because it's it goes to the heart of well, it goes to whose property or whose property is that religion or who who has the authority to teach those practices to teach that philosophy i don't know what do you guys think i think it is more complicated and like everything nuanced than it appears to be but there is undeniable sort of not it's it's undeniable that it's an appropriation to a degree and i think people which is fine like things can be appropriated in healthy ways i think Mm. um because as in the west there aren't too many people that have appropriated buddhism for like destruction and pogroms like ungan has it's you know to center yourself in your own life so you're less of a shit person um yeah i think i think you can get a bit of leeway to to that kind of appropriation um and it is very individualist whereas mongolian buddhism although you know it's it revolves around reincarnation reincarnation of buddhas into individual people but that's more of a political thing anyway but there's more of a sense of a religion rather than just a philosophy Mm. which we take and apply to ourselves and you know our surrounding loved ones yeah and that that is an interesting question that i ponder on is what happens when we take a something like buddhism or buddhist practice buddhist philosophy out of its cultural context that it's embedded in all the other things that surround it and inform it out of its linguistic context and we bring it into our language which has its whole own set of connotations um yeah what what happens it definitely becomes a different thing it's not the same thing that it was and certain things can get lost 
have you heard of this idea of conspiritualism that's kind of this phenomenon of the meeting the uh meeting between like alt-right online conspiracy theories and new age spirituality that's oh kind of occurred God. no this leads very well into our next and last topic but yeah pl please flesh that out some more well I, I i i don't know that much about it but there's a woman named sarah wilson who writes about it who used to be part of the wellness world she created like um the i quit sugar diet oh yeah um, yeah, yeah and then but then she kind of stepped out of that world because she just saw this weird confluence that's what i was looking for this confluence of like wellness culture and but it's really individualistic and it also doesn't have because it's kind of anti-mainstream um or it positions itself as anti-mainstream it then kind of seems to sit comfortably or become comfortably enmeshed with like alt-right QAnon conspiracies mistrust in institutions and, and mass media and these kind of things um and in that way perhaps you you start to get a long way from the original um purposes and meanings and context of the spiritual practices or those traditions that they're initially drawing from i guess we will not mention this again but basically anti <laughs> anti-vaxxing movement is i guess a very good example of those two worlds coming together and just becoming something else entirely and just going off yeah yeah absolutely mm. and you can and, and i guess you look at the the geographical areas in australia where that's been highly concentrated and it is places where there's like a, a focus on wellness on um, alternative ways of living on um, spiritual practices these kind of things like i'm thinking of the north coast of new south wales around around those areas so and then how is it actually happening are those people going online and getting onto deep deep forums i think it's it's online but it's also the kind of my limited understanding of it is it's the world of like um influencing and those kind of things it's and i think this is one thing that i really don't like is where and where i think there is an important question about cultural appropriation is where the wellness and spirituality meets um neoliberalism and the kind of cult of the person where the person becomes synonymous with a brand a person is a brand and so these practices are merely used to fund a particular lifestyle or they're used for financial means which um doesn't seem to be the case in the original context like i know a lot of buddhist practice and teaching is done on a dana system which is a donation which supports the the teacher or whatever to just go on doing their thing but i think what we see now is things moving very far away from that like I, there was there was someone who um, like coaching is an example of this. Are you guys aware of the world of fucking coaching, man? Don't get me started on that Lo bullshit. Life coaching. Yeah, life coaching. Like there was a. I remember coming across a woman who did my degree, uh, finished the year before I started, and was in her first year out was charging five hundred and fifty five dollars an hour for life coaching, after doing a master of counselling um and i thought that was just totally outrageous but people people pay that 
Um, it reminds me of, of Peep Show. Have you seen that? Where one of the characters, Jez becomes a life coach and he's life coaching <laughs> a couple and sleeping with both of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that you, those guys have got a sharp eye for... For for these particularly these kind of phenomenon, do you, the the ecstatic dance episode I was watching recently, and that um, really uh, rang true from my experience of attending one. So yeah, uh, uh, it's disgusting how you can leave first year university, not first year, finishing your masters, and within a year be charging five hundred dollars an hour to be a life coach, when most likely you haven't had much of a life yourself. Is unbelievable. That sounds like learning about animal anatomy and then graduating and using that information to shoot them with a sniper rifle. <laughs> <laughs> or doing animal anatomy and then going on to become a human brain surgeon. I don't know, claiming that. But yeah. it's the problem I have with life coaching is that it's rooted in the assumption that I can tell you how to live well, that I somehow have the answers to live mm. well, which I, I mean, maybe I'm just being protective as of my own profession as a counsellor, but I believe that counselling is not rooted in that. It's counselling at its best is rooted in a curiosity and appreciation and a centering of a person's own lived experience and their own skills and knowledge and competencies as people. Um, where would you place delusion on that list? <laughs> it, as a profession or as, a, as one of the things that people have? Context. <laughs> I would try and locate delusion, something closer to life coaching than, than counselling. But I don't know. Do, but in all these things, people are, I think it speaks to the fact that people are lost and they're looking for mm. some, they're looking for meaning, right? And I guess that's what I'm doing. If we go back to the question about like um, shamanic practices or whatever, it's it's part of a seeking in a world where there's such a plethora of different frames of understanding, of different perspectives, of different ways to approach that search for meaning. And some of and that can be exploited and that can lead you to very like unhelpful places and people can exploit that to profit. But it can also, like you kind of spoke to Jake with, you know, finding Buddhism to make you a slightly less shit person and appropriating it in that way. I think it can be a refuge for people. Um, but yeah, that's, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, you sort of said it before, Ivan, and it's like this, like Jake and I, we kind of, I think you're right. We enjoy the process. Like we get so excited when we heard about Ungern Sternberg and we just read the blurb of like the closest history book we could find about him. We were just enthralled and we follow him from this sort of young buck. He's, he's kicking the system. He's sticking his middle finger up to it all. He's creating his own path, even though it's sort of evil. It's just still like, incredible and amazing and fantastical but then we see where it ends and it ends in absolute shit you know it ends in chaos it ends in um, sadness it ends in despair then we switch on to apple tv and i message jake and i say hey you've got to watch this show called we crash which is about a 
startup, real life startup called WeWork. You might've heard of it before. It's this sort of co-working space, you know, you rent out rooms to, you know, um, freelancers and stuff like this, they hire out. And it started by this like plucky young um, Israeli man. His name's Adam Newman. He moves to America. He goes to business school. He describes himself as a serial entrepreneur. And you're sort of rooting for him at the start. He's hustling. He has all these ideas that don't take off. Like he has this idea for a baby suit with knee pads, you know, because they're always crawling and they'll scuff their knees. That doesn't work. Then he invents like a stiletto heel where the heel falls, folds into the shoe. But its major problem is that whenever you fold it into the shoe, it slices open your fingers and people have blood squirting out everywhere. So that business fails. And then eventually he thinks about his life in the kibbutz where he had to share everything and work together with people and, you know, sort of magic happened in those environments. And then he brings this to New York as this startup where he's like, I'm going to rent co-working space. We'll all work together. So even if you have this job where you prim primarily you work on your own, you can come to this funky warehouse with like-minded people and hang out. Jake and I were enthralled with this. We're like, it's amazing. We love this story, but then we watch it and it grows and grows. And by the end of the show, and this seems to have really happened in real life, he's basically declaring himself like a living God, a healer, you know, um, the motto of this company what was the motto again of elevate the world's consciousness. And we just watch it crash and burn and ends up in hurting a lot of people, ripping a lot of people off. Yet we're both enthralled. We already know the answers to this question, but I can't help but get into it and want to want to take Gengastra on the same path. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long diatribe, but you see where I'm getting at. I see where you're getting at till you say. I want to take it the same path because it seems that you have such, because my, you know, my perception of you is that you have such disdain for this kind of enterprise, which is, has kind of delusions of grandeur mm. and makes excessively bold claims. Isn't that the whole function of education to some but, extent is but, to instill in us that critical. But that's where we come back faculty. to this, this word delusion can we learn to be deluded if we're not already naturally so? <laughs> because the, 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 the thread that but, runs... Sorry, I, I've got to consider that. Well, the thread that runs through both these stories of Ungern Sternberg and Adam Newman, and we'll talk a little bit more about WeWork, is just that they're successful because they're deluded. And even though it ends in flames, like surely Jake and I can bring it up to the success part and stop there. But I feel like what is holding me back is my own skepticism. We're too much of a realist. We both sort of are. Do we need to be absolutely out of control, delusional psychopaths to produce something to make Genghis Tron a success? I guess if you look at what is considered successful in this world in terms of finance and stuff, then a lot of people who would fit the bill of what you've just described, right? That's true. Steve Jobs. What if we want to live up to exponential? <laughs> can you get to exponential and and stop aren't they kind of antithetical the word stop and the word exponential <laughs> <laughs> this this story's tied to to ungan in other ways though as well so the wife of adam newman is exactly what you described before as far as a sort of wellness nut um she's really lost 
she's like she's done acting she's done yoga teaching she's done sort of things across the board and she falls in with adam and while he's clearly sort of a psychotically driven narcissist <laughs> she wants i guess wants to be much like we're saying um but she attaches herself to him and his success and uses that to sort of push her own things it influences him slowly but surely with her own agenda which she's kind of making up as she goes along uh but one of those agendas is the spiritual side uh both of her and of the company we work so she comes up with the elevate the world the world's consciousness slogan she starts introducing sort of ethical things like veganism blah 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 and she uses adam as the conduit uh and just she gets basically worse and worse as a person so she just becomes detestable by the end of it not based on her morals but just on how she goes about instilling them um and we found out in our extensive research that she actually trained under the dalai lama's allegedly school uh and is a self-declared buddhist and i guess the question is that can you just buy enlightenment like that which is seemingly what she's done in this um, not that it ends well, but she adopted delusion. She took it on and went, fuck it, I'm going to be deluded. Maybe, maybe you can rent enlightenment, right? But at some point the lease runs out yeah. or you can lent, rent some kind of enlightenment light. And definitely power, money and influence can get you close to those people. Three by three by three years with the option to renew. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exponential exactly an exponential lease <laughs> do, do you, what do you think's worse um having to live under the rule of ungern sternberg in the early 20th century or working at a tech startup today because they seem horrific on both measures just a different kind of horrific right exactly the difference for me there is we haven't yet realized how horrific the second one is whereas Perhaps when your grandchildren do their podcast and look back at the phenomenon of tech startups in, in our current time, they'll see just how off track we were with those kind of endeavours. I don't know. Mm. With the whole WeWork thing, he, he, it just gets worse and worse because it's basically, it's built on a pyramid scheme. It's also built on this corporate culture of like, you should be working 17 hours a day, six days a week. You know, if not, what's wrong with you? Why don't you share my vision? And it's also, you know, supposed to be like progressive and, you know, uh, relaxed and casual. You can come to work with bare feet. However, there's this rampant culture of like sexism, malpractice, partying into the wee hours. And it all sort of, breaks down there's like a point where adam will comes into the office which it's kind of great to watch it but when he's bringing in investors to sort of like show around the office and hey you should invest in this company before they come in like a minute before they work through the door he says to everyone activate this space and then everyone has to jump on computers look busy start like having fake conversations start with each dancing. other pointing to graphs you know like graphs that are just trending upwards <laughs> <laughs> and he does this regularly and he'll just keep like because Leah's working from home I often kick in her door and just say activate the space but you know <laughs> um, there's a grand sort of crescendo 
and because it's called we crash so you assumedly you know it's it's going to crash but towards the end the company's about to go public uh they need to prepare this like crazy big document which is normally done by economists and financial advisors and blah blah blah, blah to put the company on the public stock market and they decide to write the document themselves which is just unprecedented and their process for doing it him and his wife they each take turns ringing a giant gong and just yell out a buzzword to each other and write them all down. And this list of words is part of the document. And there's a period in that as well where his wife, Rebecca Newman, she's trying to figure out what her role is in the company. She's sitting around, she's like, oh, maybe I'm the chief officer of strategy. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, um, vice president of media. No, wait, wait. And then she goes, hang on, I'm the soul of the company. And she tells her husband and they're like, okay, like, yes, like you are the heart and soul. You're pretty rambunctious. She says, no, no, no. I'm the actual soul. I am the soul of this company. I, f- I float around the office. And basically anytime she'll say something like this, he'll just pause and go, and she'll go, do you like it? And go, I don't like it. I love it. <laughs> and then they'll just ring the, they'll ring the gong and then they'll just dance and then... They'll just put it into practice, whatever it is that they've just babbled out. Not unlike Ungan's decree, whatever he, what was his proclamation? Yeah, he orders this proclamation, which is how to sort of run things. But the only order I can remember, there's like 15 proclamations. And one of them is that all communists must be turned over him to him at once. And the others is that all communists must be executed at once immediately afterwards that's all i really remember and you can't wear a manchurian ponytail <laughs> yeah something like that it's probably not that similar to the to the uh, newman's gong ringing actually is it? but if and like um at, if yeah look with we work as well there's a point where they're not only like tricking their investors because their financials are really poor but they're valuing the company extremely high they're also like conning their own employees. They're sort of getting their employees to sort of buy in, like, oh, buy some stock now because when we go public, this is going to hit the moon. This is going to go buck wild. And, you know, there's cases of like um, junior employees who already are getting underpaid, you know, buying really expensive handbags or putting a deposit down on a house, just banking that this stock that, you know, WeWork's going to um, hit the New York Stock Exchange where it's just going to blow up. Of course, it all falls down and it just leaves hundreds of people, mm. thousands of people effed, absolutely effed. So if that stuff's good enough for Silicon Valley, I say again, why is it not good enough for Genghis Tron? <laughs> so it's plenty good enough for Genghis Tron from what you've described. But when Based I... on... It, remi- when, it reminds me of like the language of marketing and there's some great parodies of this like i think utopia was one of the language that's Mm. used in governments and buzzwords there's this great episode in rake where this guy he defends this guy who goes on a crusade against this corporate jargon and marketing jargon (laughs) oh there's there's a there's a property company in perth which has on their sign down the road for me nurturing your next move and it makes me like it makes me so I don't know furious it's just ridiculous it's that co-opting of language from it's got a certain set of connotations and they know that that this is somehow connected to wellness to something natural to something wholesome 
which is why I only invest in a company called Orangutan Oil Limited because their <laughs> corporate motto, their corporate motto is mind the ape. And I know exactly what I'm getting into. There's no jargon or buzzwords there. <laughs> you know, Murdoch universities, I know universities are interesting because while they're cutting staff, heaping pressure on academics, uh, they're pumping heaps of money into their marketing strategies to attract international students. And UWA's motto was pursue impossible. So there you have a, like a logical oh. error. And then Murdoch Delusion. University decided to one up that with a grammatical error in free your think. Oh, <laughs> God. Which is plus who knows how much they paid a like marketing consultant to come up with that. And it's plastered it's a bit all over. isn't it? Oh, it's just madness. And then my cousin was telling me she was sitting on the board of a childcare center and they had, they had engaged a really, like a group of childcare centers or whatever. They had engaged a, like a marketing consultancy firm to come up with a, a, you know, like a strategy or whatever. And the logo they came up with was a tree stump that had been lopped off. Oh, <laughs> what does that represent? <laughs> never ending list of <laughs> nefarious things. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's not great. That's not great. That's kind of like the uh, outgoing Prime Minister describing himself as a bulldozer. It's not, <laughs> yeah. It's not ideal <laughs> language. <laughs> Do you think instead of like worrying about some of these moral quandaries or if not even worrying about, but like, you know, maybe we just get to them later. Maybe we, we should just follow the energy and get this business started and we can work through this as we go. Perhaps there's some like instead moral handbrakes we could put in that, for example, um, if Jake starts calling himself the soul of the company or I start wearing a lot of white linen, you step in and you, you pull the plug, you end it. Yeah. Or I think, Right, these guys are on the right track now if they're kind of doing these things. <laughs> what about so it? a fine balance. You have to let it go far enough that we succeed because we obviously need those factors to succeed uh, and then pull the plug before we tip over the edge. Mm -hmm. and by well, what about plug, installing like the equivalent, the equivalent of the, the Norwegian fund philosopher? Not like, you know... But a pub philosopher like Ron from the flag store or something, Seb, you know, someone who's going to call the bullshit. Salt of the earth philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. Could call the bullshit, could also exponentially enhance it as well. Depending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Both perform both functions. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I uh, love it. After what you've heard today and based on your own guidance, so you can sort of see our trajectory, would you happily with a clean conscience own any of this cryptocurrency would i have enough money to purchase any say it was given to you free of charge more as a bribe <laughs> <laughs> well if it's a bribe then yeah of course i would take it in, cl in clean do you have conscience. any do you have anything to offer us in exchange for this bribe besides what you've given us today which is we're not I have this um, hat, which is a Wanneroo Jundalup Ruse T-Ball Club hat with the word Cootsie embroidered and embroidered on the back flap of it. That's so good. Would that suffice? That's brilliant. I feel like we're just buying the hat off you. It's not really bright, is it? 
It's an exchange of goods. I guess so. That's true. That's true. Uh, we'll think about that. How do you feel about However, I, can, I can't see the um, cryptocurrency ever becoming so exponentially successful that it exceeds the value of this one of one. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel that you guys are still getting the best deal. Fair enough. Fair you, enough. Would, you would regret it for the rest of your days. Ivan, listen, thanks for hearing us out. Thanks for hearing about Genghis Tron. Thanks for indulging us. And you have guided us. It's been very useful today. We appreciate it. Have you got any final words for us? Uh, Godspeed. And thanks for giving me a platform to hear my own voice back at some point. I value that. Always, always. We'll send you the track of just your audio after this. Yeah, please edit yourselves out. (laughs) (laughs) 